Welcome back to another episode of Sweet Script Stories. I'm Eric Grubaugh. And I'm Tim Dietrich. And today we want to talk about the hardest question ever. What is good code? What is clean code? Uh, Tim, this was your idea, so I'm going to kick it straight over to you to <laughs> all, give us all the best answer ever to that, that question. Hmm. No pressure at all. <laughs> Easy. I, yeah, I, I wish that I actually had a good definition of of good code or clean <laughs> code. Uh, I, I can jokingly say, maybe it's not jokingly, but I don't know how to describe it or define it, but I know it when I see it. Mm -hmm. um, just like I know the opposite, bad code, ugly code, I guess is what you would call it. Um, yeah, you know, we've all seen our share of both, I think. And written so, my share of both. Yeah, uh, right. You know, sometimes you look back at your code and you cringe. You wonder what you're thinking. <laughs> it may have been code you wrote 10 years ago, or it may have been code you wrote 10 last hours week. ago. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> right. Yeah. Last night in a crazed coding, you know, like episode. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, I don't know that we are going to deliver a good definition of clean code or good code. Um, yeah, in spoiler this alert, there's no one answer, <laughs> but we are right. going to sort of talk through our thoughts and some of the things we do and our influences, things like that. Yeah. So the too long didn't read or too long didn't listen would be... Uh, we don't know what good code is, but we know it when we see it. <laughs> but we, I mean, but honestly, I, you know, this episode was actually inspired by two blog posts that I sort of stumbled upon, one back in the middle of November, and another, I'm not exactly sure when, that, when it was written, um, but I came across it within the last couple of weeks. And whenever I find something that I think would make for a good episode, I, you know, save it off in my little ideas folder. The first um, blog post that I saw was titled Write Code Like You Write a Recipe. It was written by Matthew Carter. And we'll, we'll link to all these things in the show notes. But um, that's the first one that I came across. And then the second one was Write Code Not Too Much, Mostly Functions. And it's by Brandon Smith. Um, and that was, those were really the uh, the inspiration behind this episode. And when I saved them into my folder, I didn't really even think of them as we're going to use this for an episode on clean code. It was just mm -hmm. like, oh, these are interesting. We should talk about them. But then in presenting the two to you earlier in the week, it, you know, I think you saw right away that really it's sort of, they sort of set the stage for what could be a, an interesting episode on clean code. So that's how we got here today. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That was my immediate reaction to them. It's like they're, you know, they're just talking about sort of their baseline of what is good, maintainable, readable code. Right. Yep. Different techniques, things to look out for, things that drive them nuts. Yep. So and, uh, they're one of them, at least the one, the first one you sent me has like a massive Hacker News debate behind it too. Mm -hmm. So. Feel right. free to go down the rabbit hole on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you get a lot of really interesting opinions and thoughts on these articles. 
So the first one, write code like you write a recipe. There's something interesting that he mentions. There's a lot of interesting things that he mentions in there. And I'm just going to, I'm going to just sort of pick nuggets from all of these uh, podcast or blog posts that I'm going to mention today. But one of the things that stood out to me about that post was um, he talks about this sort of fictional rewrite of an application. And I'm going to quote here. The first task is to reproduce those original requirements slash recipes out of what is in the code base. And when I read that, I had to read it twice. because I was like, wait, what, what? Because okay, I've run into that too. And it, it can be very scary. Essentially, you know, sometimes we're asked to rewrite code and we don't have the original requirements. And so you somehow have to sort of tease them out of the code. Yeah, you have to reverse engineer the project plan. That's right. I mean, it's essentially what you're not doing. Not even the people are around, right? The people who not only built it, but even the like employees, say at the client or whatever it might be, they're gone too, or they're you know in a totally different role or or something like that. Yeah, that's right. I think that's one of the many things that can make a rewrite difficult. Um, you know, first, you know, there's the obvious like the structure of the code, was it well architected? Is it modular in some way or not? You know, is it just spaghetti code? Um, how things are named can cause issues. External dependencies, you know, are there libraries or services that the thing is making calls out to that, mm. you know, maybe you can reuse them as part of your rewrite? Maybe not, you know, I don't know. Um, yeah, and we don't was even the have code. to be talking about a full Right. It could just be you're coming yeah. in a couple of years after this thing was built and has been in operation, and now you're asked to add a new feature to it or, or update an existing one. And you've got to mm -hmm. figure out how to do that without regressing anything else. Yeah. So, you know, I also had down here was it commented or not? You know, sometimes, sometimes comments help, sometimes they're detrimental. Uh, we could probably yeah. go on and on forever about that. Don't keep them uh, up to date. Right, or they're just, yeah, they're just wrong anyway. Right? Bad documentation is worse than no documentation. Right. And then like you said, the other, I had this down as well. Um, do we have access to the original developers or not? And what about the stakeholders? Who was it that originally asked for the application? Are they around? And are they the same people that are asking for, like you said, maybe it's a new feature or maybe you know, the code needs to be rewritten for some reason? Mm -hmm. You know, so without having access to the, you know, I don't, I guess call them the subject matter experts, but basically the people driving the project, whether initially or now, you know, like that can create a lot of issues with, um, you know, with a rewrite or a refactoring or what have you. This isn't really so much like talking about clean code, but I think it shows the importance of it, right? Like if, if it's not, if what you're trying to rewrite wasn't, written well to begin with, you're going to have a bad time. Uh, yeah. Potentially. And I mean, it's a lead into maybe you're the person who built it in the first place. You might be that person too. So yeah, you know, be nice to the person after you, whether, whether it's future you or, or someone else. It's right. like <laughs> professional courtesy at, at a minimum. <laughs> yeah. 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 Sometimes I think my ears are ringing because of someone who's looking at code I wrote in the past, and they're cursing me right now. Like, 
yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. My nose um, itches. Someone just found a bug. <laughs> right. Yeah, something, something's up. So I started to think a little bit about, you know, I'm going to talk specifically about rewrites here, and I don't, I'm kind of going down the rabbit hole on this, but my advice for rewrites is if you can force the issue, always have some kind of a discovery or a requirements phase built into that project. You know, it seems like it shouldn't be necessary, but I think getting really clear about what the intent of the application was and is, you know, is obviously the most important thing. You know, you don't write code until you have the requirements. And that applies whether you're rewriting something or writing something from scratch. So always act like it's a brand new project is, I guess, my advice there. Mm -hmm. Well, again, uh, bad documentation. And bad is a little bit uh, hyperbolic there. Could just be out of date documentation. Mm -hmm. Often assumed to be correct. So if you have document, if you're coming into a system cold and you have, or they do have, even if they have documentation, that simply describes the intent. You still have to make sure that's actually what the system does. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely right. Those two and can that certainly drift. And that kind of leads to something else that I, another sort of piece of advice I that I have here, which is don't look under the hood until later. In other words, you know, at first just look at it from sort of a functional standpoint, the UI, the output, you know, try to get the user experience for the system that you're rewriting. Get insanely clear on why the rewrite has been requested or is being done. You know, is it even it's still necessary to build the thing from scratch or build it custom, you know, whatever this piece of software is that you're, you've been tasked with rewriting. I mean, it could be that at the time that the original system was developed, there wasn't an off-the-shelf ready-to-go solution, and maybe now there is. Like in this, to kind of pulling this back into the SweetScript world, the NetSuite world, you know, you may have coded something a couple of years ago that took you months to build out. And now there's a bundle, you know, and you're just like, okay, I can just install the bundle. But going back to that comment that I made there about don't look under the hood until later, I think it's easy to look at the code and then start to drink the Kool-Aid as that saying goes, you know, like, oh, you know, you basically, you end up rewriting what's written, but you don't really take the time to understand it. Like maybe there's a better way. So, and it probably is. So. Yeah, why is a very important question to ask multiple times during discovery and throughout a project. Uh, I had one of my like very first projects in NetSuite was sometime in 2012, maybe maybe early 2013, somewhere around there. And I, it was maintaining this or updating this um, external application that was running on uh, Microsoft server, uh, like Windows server, and it had been written in 2007 or 8, something like that. And so at the time, this tiny little company had a massive items catalog, like 2 million items or something like that in their, in their product catalog. And NetSuite in 2007, 8 could not handle it. Like it just, 
you couldn't search those things. You couldn't like add items to a sales order because it took forever to, to like, to scan the whole catalog. So they pulled all the item catalogs out into this external database and then built this sort of integration to keep like the top, I don't know, 5,000 items or something in NetSuite. They would you know, sync every so often. Mm-hmm. And so by the time I, w- I got to it, like five years later, uh, one, NetSuite's performance had drastically improved. And two, they had added a bunch of like analytics and save search columns and stuff where I went through the whole thing and I built a save search that did like we, we built an import, CSV import, and then we just built a save search that, that rebuilt the whole report that this thing was intended to generate in the first place. <laughs> so yeah. this whole like rackspace.net application set up and it's like, well, you can delete it all now. <laughs> Here's a CSV file and a safe search. Have fun. So it's a good point. It may not be like what I was saying, you know, maybe there's a bundle now that can replicate the functionality that was written custom. Mm-hmm. But to your point, it could be that NetSuite itself has matured to the point that you don't need all that crazy, you know, whether it's an external application or who knows. But yeah. So anyway, we're kind of talking about a bunch of different things here, but. Um, you know, as far as rewrites go, I guess my point with that is, you know, you almost really need to treat it like it's a brand new project. And yet you've got, maybe you've got the luxury of the original system might give you some guidance with regards to what it is you're writing, but yeah, I don't know. So, so here's a, a question that's really easy. Uh, why is clean code important? In the case of a rewrite? just in general oh i was being facetious but yeah why it's is tough... it important to write clean good maintainable however you want to describe it code well yeah i mean you just used one of the words there i did i kind of cheated that was a lead yeah question. you did <laughs> yeah i mean i think being able to maintain the code is probably the biggest benefit to having clean code right if you whether you're going in there to add additional functionality or you know debug something you know whatever it happens to be the cleaner the code the easier that's going to be mm-hmm. so yeah so yeah it's, it's a, it seems like a simple question with another kind of difficult answer <laughs> i guess i would answer it like i did what is clean code which is you'll know when you wish you had clean code <laughs> when you don't have it <laughs> right you'll when you're living when you don't have it <laughs> right that's right so one of the other comments that uh, that was made in that blog um mentions something that you and i have talked about before which is the quote is code is meant for reading not writing um and i guess i think that clean code should be able to be read by developers and non-technical people as, as well I think that that's a sign of good code to some extent. If you can like set somebody down in front of your code who isn't necessarily a programmer, and they, if they can read it, you clearly have, well, shouldn't say clearly, there's a good chance that you've got clean code. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know that, I, I think I, I agree with you on some level, I think, 
if you are separating concerns well um, and making small single purpose components, then yeah, sort of the outer shell of your application, say like the entry point scripts uh, that you write, those modules should be pretty readable by just about anybody. Um, you know, like you could take the, the sort of the business stakeholder who's never written code and they could maybe with you sitting there sort of suss out what's going on. I don't know how necessary that is, but it's like a, it's maybe an ideal uh, goal to shoot for, I suppose. But the deeper, the sort of the deeper you get into more of the depths of the code, the less and less that's going to be true. You know, sort of in the utility yeah. sort of area or more of mm -hmm. the, the more algorithmic um, pieces of the code, that gets less and less true and it gets less and less necessary. Right. I, I agree. For a non-technical person to read it, just to tie a bow on that. Uh, yeah. It should all be readable by developers. <laughs> yeah, I think I, you know, going back to that, I think that it's it, the details aren't as important to that person. If they see a block of code and they kind of have a hunch as to what that's going to do, like, hey, this is where we're making an API call out to whatever FedEx or what, right? They don't need to understand every line of it. They just, if they can get the, the gist of what it's doing, then great. So, okay. It's, so, I'm sorry, go ahead and finish. I mean, it, that um, that situation where you have a non-developer able to read your code is something I've run into several times in the past. And it can be really interesting sometimes to let someone look at your code when you're stumped. <laughs> uh, because they can, it's not only a fresh set of eyes, but it's someone who's like, well, I know that you said this is what it's supposed to do, but is it really doing that? You know, I've run into that one before. And so... I don't know. Again, it's not a requirement for clean code, but it can be an unexpected benefit from it. So, what were you going to say? Well, I thought of something different now. So, so I know that the running theme here is we don't know, but we know when we see it. How how do you know when you don't in in like this specific instance when something is quote unquote not readable? What does that mean? What are you looking at? What do you see instead? Um, it, it's kind of an, you're going to have me sort of give away something I was going to talk about later on. No. But, <laughs> but no, I, I think it's a good segue into that. Like, if you can't read the code, there's so many reasons why that may be the case, right? It could be that the naming is funky. It could be that the functions aren't, you know, well-formed, haven't been thought out very well. Um, you know, uh, that the, maybe the functions are trying to do more than one thing aren't, and aren't clear. Maybe there aren't functions at all, right? Maybe it's just a giant mess, <laughs> um, right? The, the, the parameters for the functions are funky. You know, maybe the way they're named. Um, maybe they have side effects, you know? So I think there's a lot of reasons why code might not be readable. Um, yeah, I guess maybe there's a distinction to be drawn. You know, when you start getting into like side effects, that's less about readability. That's more of a an architecture problem. That's a 
a, right. cu a coupling problem. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering if we focus just on like the readability part. I, I mean, for me, it's almost, I, I think, like I mentioned, the outer shell of your application, those entry points should almost read like English sentences or statements sort of or whatever language you might be writing in uh, yeah it should make reverse engineering the requirements easy too right they should probably pretty clearly follow the intent of the application yeah if you have all kinds of sort of syntax decisions business logic all of that sort of stuff right up front and center, it's not going to be very readable. It's going to be very difficult to do that. But if instead you are encapsulating in modules, you know, grouping logic into functions and modules, making small usable is not quite the word I want to use here, but that sort of thing where you're basically giving an alias to you know, a set of functions or a set of functionality, those aliases can be very, very short and readable uh, and provide you that high-level overview of right. what is going on. Yeah, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about, like, someone looking at the code might not understand the details of how something's being done. And probably doesn't but, need to. Right. You know, suppose that it's a function that you've developed that makes that, go back to that example of making the, an API call out to FedEx, and I don't know why I'm using that, but, you know, if, you, if you've built that, a function to handle that, and it's named well and all that, then, you know, somebody kind of reading through your code say, oh, yeah, okay, they're making the API call here. They don't need to know what's actually gone on. Right? It's almost like a little black box. So if they want to dig into it, great, but they shouldn't have to, so... I guess it goes back to clean code is, is I think, well organized, it's structured, you know, so. Yeah, separation okay. of concerns is like, maybe if you do only one thing, <laughs> only one sort of best practice starting point is modularization or, or separation of concern. Well, that's a really good segue into this <laughs> and with something else that we've talked about before, like but in planned. the post, yeah, well, we didn't, so it, you, but you walked right into it. Um, so in the post, <laughs> he, we see this, it was essentially this fictitious developer struggling with the dry concept. Don't repeat yourself. And, and we have talked about that before. Mm -hmm. um, it seems like this, again, sort of fictitious developer that's in, you know, used throughout that post is interpreting dry to literally mean that you should write code that just has no repetitions. Yeah. Um, and again, we've talked about it before. I've, we've all run into it. And I've even seen database developers and designers do this, you know, and, and it can be a real mess where they almost take um, the don't repeat yourself too far, even at like the database design level, you know. Mm -hmm. Rather than have, and, and you know, I'm going to say this, but at the same time, it sometimes makes sense. Rather than have a table of, say, customers and suppliers and partners or whatever, they'll have this entity table. And the irony is that that is actually NetSuite. what NetSuite <laughs> uses. 
right? Yep. Um, they were they are somehow able to get away with it. It does kind of make sense. Sometimes you're looking at that table and there are columns in there that just clearly don't make any sense in the context of say a, a customer, but they make perfect mm -hmm. sense in terms of a vendor. There's a trade-off to that. Um, I'm kind of going down a rabbit hole here on, you know, potentially dry being an issue in the database world. But I've seen it also for like, I see it often with developers that are working in object-oriented programming languages, you know, where they struggle with classes and subclasses and stuff like that. But kind of pulling back a little bit, the dry concept, I think, I think developers struggle with it. And I think that it can cause issues with the cleanliness of code. So what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> thoughts? <laughs> um, there are, I think, as much as I just talked about, say, separation of concerns, modularization, that sort of thing, you, you can absolutely take that too far. You can abstract too much and go too far away from the sort of just functionality of the application. You can over-engineer and try to get way too clever with your solutions. For yeah. sure. There is, as with all things, you know, moderation in all things. There. Wow. I just sort of lost my train of thought. <laughs> so. Well, let me see if I can help you get it back. So in addition to dry, the other thing that I've seen developers oh. do often is prematurely optimize, right? Oh, yes, yes. I, I and can come back they, to that. I've regained yeah. my, my okay. train sort of. Like a little bit of repetition is far better than the wrong abstraction. Yes. So I will try to, or I will see developers who, for instance, don't like the search API. And so they'll write their own abstraction on top of it. <laughs> that's not a great idea <laughs> in my humble opinion uh, but I have the microphone so you will listen to everything I have to say <laughs> um, you can absolutely abstract way too far away and obscure the actual solution or, or the functionality of what you're trying to build there is a step too far to be sure and I, that's one example I see all the time is people trying to abstract, just generically abstract NetSuite's API. And I, I understand the impulse to, to do it if, it's, if you find it difficult to work with or clunky or just don't like the way it looks. I get it. But that is a massive maintainability problem for whoever comes next, especially if it's someone outside of your organization. Um, Maybe you could argue you don't care about them, but I would argue you should. Right. Yeah, you might be long gone by the time it becomes an issue, but it's, yeah, you're not going to rack up any good karma points by leaving a mess like that for someone. So. Okay. So this recipe sort of example that's used in in the right code like you write a recipe it was also something that i stumbled upon in another blog about functional programming it's by lee hayoi i believe that's how you pronounce his last name um, we'll link to this one as well but 
in his post, he poses some interesting questions about this, again, this sort of concept of writing code, like recipe. Like, if I have two people that are potentially working on this thing, which parts of it can be done in parallel? Can they? You know, or does, does it not even make sense to have two people there because one's just watching while the other's doing? Um, what if I reach a step that requires an ingredient that I don't have at that time? You know, can I shift further down to like the next step or a couple of steps down and do other things and come back to this later? Mm-hmm. Uh, if I messed up an earlier step, how can I recover? Like, can I recover or am I just like totally screwed and have to start from scratch? Mm-hmm. You know, again, like we're talking about this in terms of recipes, but it applies to programming as well. And what he's getting at, I think, is that with a lot of those questions is that, you know, sometimes there's an asynchronous aspect to not only the, the flow of the code, which is not the right way to say it, um, but there's, there's an, an, a potentially asynchronous aspect to what you're working on, whether it's the way you're coding it or what you're trying to do that needs to be taken into account. And he's kind of framing all this to kind of explain what functional programming is and some of the benefits of it. But um, I, I thought his questions were interesting. Yeah, I will be honest. I haven't read the whole thing yet um i it does have some great diagrams in it <laughs> <laughs> yeah that i don't know are very helpful it's like some of them it, in his case to you know to say hey functional programming super cool uh some of them make it look like a super mess and it definitely can be yeah uh, right just because you are writing you're using functional programming doesn't necessarily mean you're going to end up with clean code. Right. Yes. It's not a requirement of it either. The same um, is true of, of uh, any other paradigm, say class-oriented mm-hmm. programming. Writing classes doesn't automatically give you clean code or readable right. code. Yeah. And you can easily, I think, sort of get yourself back into that dry mess that we just talked about before. Mm-hmm. He did have some good points about functional programming that I, that I thought were interesting, though. There's and there's a lot. It's a great article. Um, that I think that the dependencies tend to be more clear. You know that this function has to be called prior to this, or this one, or this needs to be done before that. Uh, I think refactoring becomes a little bit easier. Debugging often is a little bit easier. It, I mean, it, I, don't, I guess we should say this about everything we're saying in this uh, episode. It, it just depends, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't. There's again, there's no dogmatic answer to this. No matter how much you will hear and see people say and write that, yeah, I, I don't think you should approach, especially in the like the sweet script sort of space. There's no one paradigm that fits writing business applications super well. Um, yeah. So why do you think you mentioned a couple things there? Like, why is debugging easier? Why is it more readable or maintainable? Well, in theory, with the you know with functional programming, uh, you know methodology, I think you're going to end up with, with and I you know say this, but it's kind of 
oversimplifying it, you're going to end up with code that is more modular. You know, you, you mentioned separation of concerns before, and yeah. I think that does make it easier to refactor, to debug, you know, it's easier to find that sort of make a sort of a surgical change or a fix to code as opposed to trying to figure out all the places that are potentially causing the issue. It should really narrow down to one central issue that you're that you're trying to resolve or some one central place in the code that needs to be modified or enhanced or what have you. Mm -hmm. And so and I do think that's somewhat true that you're more likely to, to get into that kind of a situation with functional programming than, you know, using whatever, you know, whether it's imperative, procedural, whatever. So that being said, if, you, if you've taken dry too far and maybe abstracted something in a way that you shouldn't have, then... <laughs> You know, you, you might end up with a bigger mess than you thought, right? It, you may have been better off not over uh, um, simplifying. Uh, well, that's not the right word. Ab over abstracting. Yeah. Right. Because now you have all these dependencies on that code that maybe shouldn't have been in the first place. Hmm. And now you have to go in there and change that code. And you don't know what the ripple effects are going to be. So, yeah, boy, this right. is going to be a really abstract episode. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's... But it's the nature of it, right? It really is. Yeah, that's sort of where the, the art of this profession comes in. It, it is abstract. There is no one definite canonical picture. Yeah. So that article that I just mentioned, um, the functional programming article, he sums up functional programming like this. And I thought this was pretty good. The core of functional programming is thinking about data flow rather than control flow. And yes. I've never really thought about it that way, but yes, I think that's, that's true. Yeah. There's a and, quote that I am not going to be able to attribute right now. I will try to find it later that I have seen and have followed, I've seen it once, and I have just, I latched onto it, and I've followed it ever since. But you design your data structures first, and the code will follow. So if you have, you're trying to build a process, sort of a, I don't know, say an integration. If you start with the, say, the JSON object that the, integration is going to return to you then you, you sort of know from the business operation from the requirements sort of the steps that that object needs to go through and if you design the the data structures in between that are in between all those steps the code for the steps will naturally follow you so you, you basically are designing the inputs and outputs before you ever write the actual code and it, yeah. it really does make designing even super complex and uh, winding systems very, I'm not going to say very easy, but clearer. Right. I think what you're dealing with there is, you know, 
what you're starting with and you know where you're trying to get to. And yes. so the, the, the development just becomes, okay, how do we do that now? We know Precisely. where we are. Yeah. You're sort of, instead of building a set of instructions, you're building a set of transforms, basically. Mm -hmm. Yep. I like that. Okay. So the second uh, episode or um, pod, uh, <laughs> blog post article that sort of inspired this episode was the right code, not too much, mostly functions. Mm -hmm. um, the title and the content of that post are based on a quote by author Michael Pollan which is eat food, not too much, mostly plants. So he's using that simple technique uh, for eating a nutritious diet or trying to tell you here's how to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and in the, in the blog post, uh, what Brandon's doing is kind of using that to describe how to write clean code, right? And right. I think it's a pretty cle clever analogy. So going back to that, eat, eat food is write code not too much is not too much <laughs> and mostly plants is mostly functions right. so it's again it's kind of clever the um in the right code portion of this in brandon's post he is basically describing his take on repetition and the dry concept again right um dry and he is says taking in, a beating lately <laughs> yeah well, it is I could, because I think it's something, I think we're seeing more people struggle with it as they become aware of it. Like they just take it too far. And I know it's, I've done it. It's presented, know. it's often presented in the wrong way. Right. As don't repeat yourself, meaning repetition of code. And that's not what the principle is written about. Yeah. Um, Sorry, so, I you no, that, no, but you're right. So, so that's what he's talking about there with write code, right? It basically, don't be afraid to write code. Don't take dry too far. It's kind of what his advice with that part of it is. The not too much is, um, he writes, uh, write what needs to be written and then try not to overindulge I thought that was interesting. And I think what he's getting at there is he's kind of warning against feature creep or, you know, writing code to support functionality that really isn't part of the requirements, but that you think will be needed someday. You know, you just, oh, this would be fun to write. I'm going to write it. It's, it's not required. What's that? Yak shaving. Yes. Also chrome plating, whatever you, yep. gold plating, whatever you want to call it. Right. Yep, and I think it's easy to do that, right? We sometimes take things too far. Again, same thing we do with dry, but now it's kind of the other way. Now it's like, oh, I'll just sort of add this to the functionality of the application. Just get it done. <laughs> Keep it simple. Mm -hmm. Well, um, that's 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 also how you end up with the quote wrong abstractions. Is where you sort of even if you abstract maybe the quote right thing in the right way but then later you're, you're writing something else that's sort of similar and you get that yeah you get that fear of repetition in there and then you you're just like well it's close enough i'll just add it to that same abstraction it's like <laughs> sort of a small use case uh, that that's where you start 
getting into trouble. Right. Yep. Again, a lot of these terms are very like relative and subjective and sorry, I can't define them because they are relative to the project that you're working on and to your own team and preferences and style. And again, mm -hmm. that's where the art of this comes. Right. So continuing with his analogy, again, he takes these with the mostly plants, he's basically saying mostly functions in, mm -hmm. in the, uh, the analogy and what he's really talking about there, he's comparing plants to pure functions. Um, and he wrote in there that writing that subset in a pure functional style is nearly always a win for the long-term health of the project, which is kind of interesting. Um, mm -hmm. And he says that uh, writing a completely functional system is kind of the equivalent of, he compared it to kind of going vegan where it might not, it might take some massive effort to kind of, you know, take the time to do it right, I guess, but it's worth it in the long run. Mm -hmm. I'm going to sum that up as take the time to write the code correctly, as painful as it may be. Um, and I'll just add that your future self or, you know, person that's looking at your code later will thank you for it, right? Do it right what it comes down to so yeah i do think he's getting a little a little bit maybe dogmatic there like in a very light way i suppose mm -hmm. yeah i don't it's it would be hard for me to say that like that effort involved in the transition if you're on a team and you're the only one who's been uh writing functional code or even understands it uh functional programming code that is not code that works <laughs> um if you're the only one who knows understands and writes functional code and the rest of the team doesn't uh that's a huge problem there's going to be a huge effort there if you leave that team is a guarantee that code will get swept into a dark corner that no one will touch um, I know that because it's happened to me. I have been that guy who only who was the only one on the team writing sort of functional code, and I don't even I wouldn't even call it pure functional, but just using a more functional style that none of the rest of the team knew or understood. And and then uh, I was put in a different role, and I was not there to help with that code and. Uh, a couple years later, I was talking to one of the developers on that team, and he was like, uh, yeah, we just, uh, no one ever wanted to touch that code, so we rewrote it our own way. <laughs> so if you're the only one who's doing that, I would say, yeah, that's, that's a bit of a leap for me. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think it's kind of pushing the analogy a little there, yeah. but I would kind of change it to take the time to kind of go back to what we were saying earlier, take the time to architect the code in a way that is as modular as, as makes sense. Mm. Um, if you don't do that, you're going to pay for it later. <laughs> so it's not exactly what he was saying, but that's, that would have been, I guess, how I would have put it. 
I would have written mod writing modular code as much as you can. Mm -hmm. so. so a lot of this seems to just be coming back to modular code separation of concern. Mm -hmm. I think we're starting to see a theme running yeah. through these. Why is that? Why is that so important? What does that give you? What does that add to the equation? Well, you know, I said it earlier, I think it does make it easier to maintain the code. It makes it easier to debug code, right? The, mm. the balance that you have to strike there is, and I'm going to mix the two things up a little bit here, but modularity and um, abstraction, they don't necessarily, they're not, they're not the same thing, but they think there's a lot of, I don't know, I don't want to even say dependencies. It, it's, it's, I think modular code, again, is easier to, to maintain. And I think depending on what, how it is that you're writing that modular code, you know, if you've, if basically what you're writing, if, if what you're writing is abstractions and you've taken those too far, then you've actually done more harm than good. Right. So I, it's, it's kind of really hard to explain without actually seeing code and being able to say, okay, yeah, here's what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's the difference yeah. between say a function and a class or a, a, you know, a class with its own, like with its methods and, um, and I guess it just sort of all goes back to what is going to work for you in terms of creating clean code is, I think, very um, subjective, right? You and I might look at sorry. You and I might look at the same code, and I might say, "Yeah, that's pretty clean," and you might look at it and be like, "Oh my god, you know, like this is horrible." Yeah, there's a lot of subjectivity, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. If there wasn't, this job would be super easy, and <laughs> it would be easy to teach it too, wouldn't it? It would be easy to just say, "Okay, here's the twelve rules you need to know to write clean code." We'd all, we'd all uh, centralize on one language and write everything the same way, and <laughs> most of the world's software problems would be solved. And we wouldn't be writing it; it would be all you Correct. know AI. <laughs> we would be if writing. It was that easy the things that write the code for us. Um, and then we'd be done. <laughs> and then we'd be done. Right. Um, so one thing we've both said multiple times or implied is that modular code is easier to maintain. Why? Mm -hmm. What makes it easier to maintain? I think it's easier to locate the code that's maybe causing the problem, if that's the case, or that needs to be enhanced if you're adding functionality. Um, and in theory, that making the change to that modular code, you're gonna, it should be more clear to you what the potential impact is throughout the entire application. You know, it should be clear that it's safe or not to make that change, whereas if you're working with code that's not modular, there's the potential to have a ripple effect that you can only, I don't know, you just cross your fingers <laughs> that it works out. So what do, what, what's your take on that? 
Wait, I have to answer? I was just going to ask you a bunch oh. of questions. <laughs> Why do I think it's easy to maintain? I agree with you. So I wasn't like challenging you by any means, but I, I think it's easier to maintain because of the things you said. And it just, by breaking problems down into smaller pieces, not infinitesimal pieces, <laughs> again, you can take it too far, but by mm -hmm. breaking complex problems down into small pieces, it's easier to identify where, again, where something's going wrong or where to change something. And it just, everything gets clear, the cognitive load of sort of working on the application or a specific file gets smaller, it gets lower, it gets simpler because you're, you know, just as a wild example, like instead of tr like trying to make a change in a user event script that's 25,000 lines long versus sort of starting at this, at a nice, you know, small compact user event that maybe delegates to a module or two and then hopping into those modules and sort of tra tracing using the stack trace that an error gives you, for instance, um, lets you sort of get at the right resolution quickly, like the right um, resolution was a bad word <laughs> for errors, and lets you get to the right level of the application quickly, and then you can focus only on that level. You don't have right. to look below that. You don't have to look above that. Um, you can focus focus in right there. Yeah. Because you know that sort of from there, you, you know where all the dependencies are. You know what the inputs and outputs are, those sorts of things. You know that's all yeah. the further you need to go. Yeah. And so you're just trying to reduce the, the cognitive load as you look at a piece of code and work on a piece of code. Right. That's a good way to describe it. Um, so I had some other thoughts that I, before, that I wrote down before we started the episode. And it basically, right. I just kind of sum it up like this, that I, you know, I, I struggle with saying that there's one, run, one right way to write code. I think we've made mm -hmm. that pretty clear, right? It's, it's just not that clear cut. There are some of the factors that come into play that can cause, you know, it cause you to not write clean code. Sometimes, you know, or beyond your control, it may be time constraints, budget constraints, you know, a rush to get the thing done. Um, external dependencies that, that are there that you just have, you know, no, no way around, like, uh, you know, breaking the dependencies. Could be APIs, subsystems. Who knows? Um, you know, legacy code, organizational coding standards, or lack thereof. Right? I mean, there's mm -hmm. there are just so many things that could potentially cause you to not write clean code, even with the best of intentions. Um, I say all that, but I do think that there is one rule that should always apply, <laughs> and I I kind of swear by it, which is keep it simple. You know. Um, when I was still on Twitter, my little tagline or whatever they call that was keep it simple, get things done. It can be that easy if you let it. And uh, I think that if you, if your goal is to write clean code, you should err on the side of simplicity. Right? Keep it simple, keep it clean. And uh, so 
that's kind of me summing summing this up. Um, any thoughts on that? I think that's a great uh, summing up. I am reluctant to open this can of worms late in the episode, but you did mention like organizational standards, sort of. Mm -hmm. And something we didn't touch on really at all is sort of more the aesthetic of clean code, like the formatting. Um, and I genuinely think that's very important. Not, I'm not going to get into a tabs or spaces argument here or a which line do the braces go on. That's not the point. As I think the important part is consistency yeah. in professional code. I think if you are working for a business and on a team of people, uh, everyone should be writing that professional code the same way or using tools that reformat it that way for you. If you really don't like putting your brace on the same line or the next line or whatever the organization has decided, that's fine. Use a linter that will put it there for you so you can write it however you want, but the rest of the team can read it how they need to. Yeah. That consistency is very important in reducing cognitive load as well. Right. I kind of like totally took the wind out of your nice summarization there. By oh, not at all. It actually, no, it actually is a good segue into one last thing I was going to talk about, which there, I stumbled upon another, um, it's an article uh, on free code camp. I was, just, I was just looking for, okay, well, how do other people define clean code? And this one popped up is called clean code explained a practical introduction to clean coding for beginners. I cannot begin to pronounce the author's name. So I'm not even going to try, but look in the in the show notes, and you'll you'll see why. Uh, but he mentions things like naming things, uh, which we're planning to do a future episode on. Uh, and he quotes Phil Carlton, who said that there are only two hard things in computer science: cache invalidation and naming things. Mm -hmm. There's probably more than two, but yeah. <laughs> um, and so I'm not going to like go into okay, well you know. How should we name things? But I'm just kind of pointing out that these are things that sort of play into whether your code is clean or not. He also has some really great, I think, really great advice on uh, developing functions, you know, keeping them small. Uh, they should do one thing. Uh, you should encapsulate conditionals in functions, which I'll let you guys check the article out to see what we're talking about there. Mm -hmm. Use a few arguments, you know, don't have uh, 50 arguments for your function calls. Uh, avoid flag arguments. Um, don't have side effects. Don't repeat yourself, which I thought was interesting because he has that in there. Um, and he also mentions things like that you and I have talked about before, and I'm kind of guilty of this one. Don't leave code in your comments or comments in your code. <laughs> yeah, in my case, that's probably it. The damn yeah. code, I've got to get it out of my comments. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but this one goes back to was why I brought this up as it being a good segue into coding standards. Know your language's conventions, right? We're not really talking about like organizational coding standards here, but mm -hmm. um, there are certain conventions for different languages. Some, some of them even have suggested style guides. Yeah. You mentioned spacing, how things are common and how things are named. Mm -hmm. You know, look at variable names in, in uh, say, PHP. 
or C++ or JavaScript or SweetScript, and they all have a certain, usually a certain kind of look and feel about them. And um, you don't want to be writing PHP code, style code in SweetScript and vice versa, right? Um, so anyway, it's another article that we'll link to. I think it does help to kind of guide people or form sort of the basis of how you can write clean code. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I feel like I haven't provided any resources. You've 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 mentioned all the blog posts and such, but we are not, of course, the first people to have this discussion. Uh, there are some great books. I'm going to mention this one again, and I'll probably talk about this book, I don't know, every episode, basically. But <laughs> the Pragmatic Programmer, ton mm -hmm. of great advice for sort of professional, maintainable code. And then there's also a book called Clean Code, um, another older but very classic, influential book. Yeah. Both of those we'll link to in the show notes. But highly recommend those. Um, there is another book too, especially if you are interested or enjoy writing like class-oriented programming, and you're coming from another language like C sharp or Java or something, and you really want those classic object-oriented patterns, like the facade pattern or the command pattern, those sorts of things. Uh, Adi Osmani, the like the lead developer on Chrome, I think now. Mm, he works at Google, I'm not sure what he's doing now, but uh, he has written a great book on JavaScript design patterns that again, we will link to in the show notes. Yeah. Just a quick note on those books. What's interesting, I said it's been years since I read them, but I remember, I remember reading, I think it was Clean Code and I don't remember what language or languages are used in the examples, but it just, it's interesting because even if you aren't familiar with a certain programming language and you see clean code in that language, <laughs> I think you, it resonates with you, right? Like you, it don't, you don't even have to be as familiar with programming language as you might think to be able to identify clean code written in that language. Mm -hmm. And I just, it's just, it's been a very long time since I've read clean code, but um, I think I was even reluctant to pick it up because at the time, I don't know, I was probably writing cold fusion code or something like that. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. But anyway, I guess that's kind of a, maybe a, another good point that clean code, uh, you know, it, it, it isn't dependent upon any specific language. You can write clean code in any language. You can also yes. write terrible code in any language. Mm -hmm. And the patterns or clean code in one language might be patterns for very terrible code in another. Mm -hmm. Right. But, well, we kind of talked about that, you know, earlier, and I think we've talked mm -hmm. about it before that, you know, you, you, it's always good to have a background in other languages, but you, you know, I'll say it again, like you don't want to write PHP style code, whether it's naming conventions or, you know, the way the functions work, whatever, in SweetScript, <laughs> right? SweetScript in sweet script yeah <laughs> so. all right well that's all i have um yeah i don't i don't have anything else to add i don't think excellent well hopefully we weren't too abstract we, we definitely were too many 
I don't know how you couldn't with this, right? It's a no. tough topic. It's very abstract. It's very um, relative. It's very subjective. Right. Welcome to software right. development. <laughs> That's why we have jobs, right? Correct. So we should probably wrap up with our usual cool things. Did you have anything this week? You go first. Okay, that way you can think up one real quick. <laughs> no, I'm definitely totally prepared for this. I have oh, wow. A great one. Awesome. I'm not okay. thinking about right now. Cool. All right, well, mine is a little bit different this week, and it's something I actually bought back in the fall. It's called the Oyo Personal Gym, and it's this small sort of lightweight like device that is for resistance training. Um, we used to belong to a gym when the pandemic started, you know, that sort of went out the window. So mm -hmm. um, I stumbled upon this thing. I don't even remember how much it costs. It's available on Amazon. But if you are looking for an interesting way to kind of do some exercising resistance, especially nowadays, with everybody sort of being trapped inside, um, you might want to check this thing out. We'll link to it in the notes. That's that's my cool thing. What was that called again? It's called the Oyo Personal Gym. And it's pretty wild. It's like if you look at it, it looks almost like a either a crossbow or a bow and arrow. It's you know, oh. it has like the 25 pounds of resistance that you can get out of it. But there it's the way it's designed, you can do like just tons of different exercises for different parts of your body. And I am by no means like an expert in any of this stuff, but mm -hmm. It's pretty cool. They have videos online on how it works and different things you can do to get a you know good workout and different parts of your body. So, you know, if you're just sitting in front of uh, your computer all day, it's I I usually have it pretty close by, and every once in a while I'll just sort of pick it up and mess around with it for a little while. And so anyway, we'll link to it. Gotcha. We sure will. Uh, okay, I suppose it's my turn. Uh, we are recording this in very early January 2021. Uh, so Christmas was not that long ago. And my son got a huge bag of like the really jumbo Legos, <laughs> like the big toddler size Legos. And man, do I love Legos. So this is just like a general uh, pitch for Legos because uh, they're amazing. I love building and creating with Legos, and they're not. There's no like set or anything like that, right? These are, these are the toddler version, where it's just a big pile of random Legos, mm -hmm. um, and that's like the best way to to do Legos. I think the sets, you know, like the pre-built ones with instructions, are very cool. Especially some of the the more recent, like the modern ones, they are ridiculously amazing. <laughs> but they're not that fun to put together. I wouldn't say I've put a few of them together and they look cool sitting on a shelf, but they're not that interesting to put together because you're just following instructions. Yeah. Uh, so if you haven't and you're looking for something to do as an adult in this pandemic, get a giant pile of Legos and just start <laughs> putting them together. <laughs> yeah. So I think those big blocks that you're talking about are, I think they are the Duplo, if I remember correctly. My son I used to have those. I could not they're... tell you what the brand is, but, you know, everyone yeah. knows Legos. 
Yeah, so. they're Lego, but that's like that's the yeah, they're Lego Duplo. I think they call them. Oh yeah, but there I'm pretty are, sure these um, are a different brand. Like they're not le- they're not technically Lego. Oh okay. But yeah, you know what but, I mean. They're the mm-hmm. stackable bricks. <laughs> yep. That even toddlers and, can put together. And there are kits like of the sort of standard size Legos where they are like like you said they're just blocks they're not like you know you do with them what you want there's no instructions or anything i don't know what those kits are called but they do exist and i agree with you you know some of those like especially if you look at some of the really awesome star wars lego kits they're really neat to put together but then when you like take them all apart and you're sitting there looking at the blocks you know it's like well what can i do with them other than build the thing that they came with you know it's yeah it's all the joy out of it Right. So, yeah, my son has so many Legos from, you know, over the years and growing up and man, but uh, yeah. anyway, but it does bring back your childhood, right? It's one of the, and it's a good stress reliever, right? You sit down in front of a pile of bricks and build something and it really you know. is. It really, really is. It's like a, almost like a Zen garden. <laughs> <laughs> my version of the zen garden just set me on the floor in the middle of a gigantic pile of legos (laughs) yeah yeah you can lose hours (laughs) yeah that's a great cool thing awesome all right well i guess that does it for this episode all right well join us again next time for more sweet script stories bye-bye